This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everybody. Good afternoon on this uh, glorious sunny day and the opening day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Sarah Smith. I recently moved back to BBC Scotland from Channel 4 News to anchor some of the BBC's referendum coverage. Uh, it's a very exciting time to be here, as you know. Um, anyone here who lives in Scotland is all too well aware that this uh, debate on the independence referendum has been going on for two years now, and it sometimes seems like we can barely talk about anything else. But this is the week it really got going. The phony war is over. The first shots in the real battle were fired when the First Minister, Alex Salmond, and the uh, Better Together leader, Alistair Darling, went head-to-head -head in a TV debate. And there was wall-to-wall -wall coverage of what they both said and how they both performed, yet... At the end of it, many voters still said it didn't help them to make up their minds. They still didn't have either the facts or the vision that they needed to know how to vote in the independence referendum. Um, so we're here to help you out with that. This year's uh, book festival title is Let's Talk, and it's about placing a major emphasis on dialogue about Scotland's future. Nick Barley, the director of the festival, says he hopes that it's in these theatres that writers and audiences can enjoy a discussion about Scotland that goes beyond the TV soundbite or aggressive political rhetoric. He says, admissions of uncertainty are acceptable, changes of mind are encouraged, and imaginative leaps are recommended, and that's not always what you find in political discussion. But it's in that spirit that I'm absolutely delighted to introduce one of Scotland's best-respected political commentators, Please give a very special book festival welcome to Ian McQuarter. Ian is a very well-kent face on Scottish TV and in the newspapers thanks to his Sunday Herald columns. He's been a major figure in Scottish political journalism for decades. He um, covered, the, covered the Scottish political scene from the lobby in Westminster. Uh, he came back here for the opening of the Scottish Parliament. And last summer he published a book, Road to Referendum, which uh, copies of which are available later. It accompanied a major three-part television series. And... He's here to tell us about the political road that led us to the referendum, and we'll also discuss what road that may take, what direction that road may take afterwards. <laughs> so, Ian, you did an excellent job in the book of drawing together all the historical threads that some of us half remember from school, and, and pointed us in the direction of how we got here today at this historic moment in Scotland. Is it important, the history and how we got here? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, there was some you know, doubt about whether it was it made sense to. Uh, include a lot of history in a book about a very contemporary political event, particularly stretching it back to the wars of independence, uh, Bannockburn, Bruce, Wallace, and all the rest of it. But I think it was important to do that, not least because when I started researching the book, I was terribly conscious that my own uh, knowledge of that period was very suspect uh, indeed. And also that uh, people's contemporary political attitudes are shaped by the political culture, and Scotland's political culture is, like it or not, shaped by its history. Just as Magna Carta is tremendously important uh, for how you know, England thinks of itself today and how it's regarded across the world, the same with the English Revolution or, uh, or the Doomsday Book. Similarly, Scotland's great events like uh, the Wars of Independence, like the Declaration of Our Both, are tremendously significant and important. They are a kind of living history, and they do condition how we look at politics uh, today. Um, and there's a particular problem with Scotland, which is we have a kind of cultural aversion, the Scottish cringe, as, uh, as it's usually described, 
there's almost an aversion to even talking about Scotland's history as if this is in some way to capitulate to a kind of you know, tartan romanticism, uh, to emotional politics. But um, you know, I think it was, so I think it was very important to address that and say that history still is relevant to politics now. And you make one important point in the book in that Scottish history, that we were never a colony. You describe us yeah. as enthusiastic uh, partners in the British Empire and make the point this means that what we're talking about today is not a struggle for national liberation. We're not trying to throw off the forces of foreign domination. And people looking outside often think that this debate is about national identity, but you make the point that it's not. Absolutely. This is tremendously important because, you know, Wallace and Bruce, I mean, that was a very significant uh, historical event in terms of it, in terms of nation building because it was one of the earliest examples of popular nation building. The Declaration of Arbroath did genuinely inspire many of the people who wrote the American Declaration of Independence. That's historically the case. But Scotland is not and has never been a colony. And it's tremendously important. We get a lot of people coming across from European countries, from Canada and America, and their kind of assumption is that, well, Scotland's a bit like Ireland, you know, uh, under you know, an internal colony, under the oppression by the English, and Scotland's only just kind of joined the Celtic Revolution a bit late in the day, but that's not the case at all. Scotland was never a colony uh, in that sense. Um, after the uh, 1707 Union, there was opposition to the Union, political opposition, popular opposition, there's no doubt about that, particularly after they introduced the malt tax, which greatly increased the cost of beer and whiskey in Scotland, and that caused civil riots, <laughs> uh, which uh, were made, um, there were genuine fears that that might be uh, a national rebellion. That, that petered out eventually, and from about 1750 onwards, Scotland got very heavily involved in the creation and extension of the British Empire, Scottish soldiers fought the colonial wars. Products of Scottish universities ran many of the great trading companies, the Hudson Bay Company, for one, the East India Company. Uh, and, you know, the same Scots ran the colonial administrations under the empire. The so Scots were, were, were junior partners, but they were very enthusiastic partners in the British Empire throughout the 19th century. In Ireland, really, from almost in the moment that Ireland joined the Union in 1801, there was opposition, political opposition, to the uh, United Kingdom, and that grew steadily over the next century and led to the Irish uh, Civil War uh, and to independence. Scotland has not got anything like that history at all. Scots were totally signed up to it throughout the 19th century, and that's, again, why history is important today, because uh, that history is, tells us why the idea of independence is, has been such a difficult one for many Scottish voters to come to terms with, because really it's only in the last decade or so certainly since the creation of the Scottish Parliament, that Scots have thought, thought seriously at all about becoming an independent country. I mean, it, it was, the SNP was nowhere in the 1950s. It was the monster raving loony party of its day, the only difference being it didn't get as many votes. And, you know, it was 0.0.1% of the vote in 1955. Scotland was dominated by the old Scottish Unionist Party, a Conservative and Liberal alliance. So, you know, this, this is tremendously important because... You know, there's been about 120 countries that have become independent since 1945. In no case has the dominant issue been one of currency. And that tells you a lot here. <laughs> exactly. I mean, when people seek independence, they seek freedom, first of all. They don't care about what currency they can use afterwards. They don't care about whether or not they'll be elected into the European Union either. They want to be liberated from foreign oppression. And Scots have never felt like that. They, they do not feel uh, oppressed. And this is not a national liberation struggle. 
You talk a great deal about how after the Reformation, um, Calvinist conservatism runs through Scottish politics, whether of the, the left and right, to make the point that uh, the Scottish Conservative Unionist Association were the, the dominant force for a long time in Scottish politics. We saw the um, Tory party wiped out, of course, in the 1997 general election in Scotland, and now they've come back um, and have representation in the Holyrood Parliament and, and, and one MP. Will that innate conservatism in the Scottish political soul come back in an independent country, do you think? Would we see a thriving Conservative Party? That's a very, very interesting question. I mean, it really is, because I mean, this is the mystery of Scottish politics. That I mean, Scotland was, uh, if you like, a Conservative country. I mean, the, the only party which has, has ever had a majority of seats and a majority of votes in any Scottish party, is in any Scottish general election, has been the Conservatives, or rather the old uh, Scottish Unionist Party, the Conservative and Unionists, in, that was in 1955. No party has ever emulated that. So in, in many ways you could argue that Scotland historically has not necessarily been a purely Labour country. It was very conservative uh, in the 1950s. And really it was only when the national question became dominant uh, you know, after Margaret Thatcher, after 1979, that Scotland swung over massively to the Labour Party. And really ever since then Scotland has been a Labour country. Uh, and that, that applies as much today as it did uh, in the 1980s because um, the SNP, Alex Salmond, the, the brilliant opportunist of, of Scottish politics, he uh, consolidated the SNP's position uh, from, from being a very insignificant party to being the party of government in Scotland, basically by adopting Labour's uh, political programme that had been abandoned by Labour under New Labour in the early, 19, in, in the early years of, uh, of this century. So, I mean, but to go back to your question, there is this puzzle of what happened to the Conservative vote, and many people have been looking for it to be revived. They thought that um, after Thatcher went that Tories would recover in Scotland. They didn't. They thought when Cameron came along and apologised for Thatcher that the Tory vote would recover. It didn't. Uh, Tory is still a four-letter word in Scotland, and the Tories are still a very marginal force, um, you're dicing with extinction, really, in Scottish politics. Now they've come up with a very radical offer in the context of the referendum when they've said that they will devolve all tax powers or rather all economic, uh, sorry, all income tax uh, uh, powers to the Scottish Parliament in the hope that that bid for fiscal autonomy will uh, lead to their recovery. Um, I've yet to be convinced. But nevertheless, there is this Tory Conservative, you know, right of centre vote. It's, it's, it's there somewhere. And if the Tories don't revive, then I fear it will be the SNP that in some way has to accommodate that. Uh, there's a thought. And you see, you describe Scotland as a Labour country still, but one who doesn't have a Labour government in Holyrood. To what extent are we here today looking at having an independence referendum because it is a political triumph of the SNP or small-end nationalism, or is it the Labour Party's inability to connect with Scottish voters since the Blair era that's led us to this point? Well, obviously, it's a combination, really, of both. I mean, Alex Salmon is a brilliant politician, as I say, a brilliant opportunist, and he's, uh, you know, he, is, he has managed to change the character of, to Scot of Scotland to the extent that, as I say, uh, until about a decade ago, the idea of independence, of, of Scotland seeking independence, was almost impossible for people even to grasp why Scotland would need to be independent, because Scotland was part of the British Empire, it was part of the UK. I mean, after 1945, again, Scotland felt very committed uh, to the social democratic character of the United Kingdom then, to the these great institutions like the National Health Service and regional policy and uh, you know, nationalized industries and trade unions. And, um, you know, in, in, in one, one interpretation of what's happened, indeed, is that Scots really stayed there. It was, it was England that moved away from that idea of the union, that kind of social union. Uh, 
as Thatcherism came along and dismantled the uh, public sector and began privatization and, and all the rest of it. Um, so Alex Salmond, you know, he's, he's capitalized both on that and on Labour's uh, failure, really, to stick to its social democratic principles um, and al allowed itself under Tony Blair to move very rapidly down the route of kind of neoliberalism, uh, which was never popular in Scotland. And, uh, you know, I think that's pretty much where we are at the moment. And uh, as I say, the idea of independence is an incredibly recent phenomenon, but there have been developments recently, and we'll come on to this, particularly the declaration on the pound, this um, uh, idea that Scotland would not be allowed to use the pound after independence, which has, I think, changed fundamentally the character of the Union for all time. And one other thing which has probably changed the constitutional settlement, whatever the result of the vote, is that by concentrating on the independence question over the last decade, more particularly over the last couple of years, it feels to me that the debate has shifted quite a lot from could Scotland be an independent mm. country mm -hmm. to oh, yeah. should it. Mm. Uh, and nobody really is arguing that it's mm. not possible, mm. that it wouldn't be a prosperous and successful country. It's just a question of whether it's a country that you want to live in or not. And that's got mm. to alter the settlement forever, hasn't it? Yes, I think that's, that's just tremendously important as well, because... As I say, Scots were heavily sold into the idea of the British Empire initially, sold into the idea of the United Kingdom after the Second World War. Um, but they were always conscious that they were the junior partners in this relationship. And Scots have never been naive. Uh, I mean, the Union in 1707 was meant to be a, a, you know, a, a free partnership of two countries, two nations, who continued in, in, with their own uh, national and in, institutional existence after 1707. Uh, and the, the fiction was that, you know, England and Scotland had ceased to exist. It was now Great Britain. We had the pound, which was this great symbol of this partnership. Uh, uh, but Scots were never kind of... Scots realized that uh, they were very much on the fringes of this enterprise and that it was basically being run uh, by the, the larger neighbor. I mean, you know, Britain is, uh, is uh, composed of two countries which are grossly disproportionate in size, which is one reason why federalism has always been a difficult concept to get off the ground here. But I mean, you know, what, what has happened, I think, in, in recent years, uh, in fact, just in this past year, is that, well, Scots have realized, for the first time perhaps, they've had to think, well, could Scotland be an independent country? In the past, it never seemed plausible. Uh, it was even something that would not be discussed even you know, politely among Scots in a pub. But now, I think, they've had to look at it and address it seriously and, and realize that Scotland is actually quite a wealthy country already apart from oil, it has many uh, economic advantages. Uh, it has five world-class universities for a start, which is more than uh, France or Germany. I mean, it has you know, significant uh, strengths in financial services and life sciences. Uh, it has a uh, you know, whiskey industry in Scotland now worth 4.6 billion a year. Uh, I mean, the idea that Scotland could not be, in, be a, a successful independent country really is no longer credible. And you know that was what David. That was how David Cameron grasped that when he said uh, that Scotland could, of course, be a successful independent country. It's just that you know England would miss Scotland's participation. It'd be very sad. Um, but that that was that was uh, you know, and this this is without the without the oil with the oil. Scotland obviously has a very significant uh, IPO. But the problem for Labour, Labour is still caught in this with this devolution dilemma because, as you'll have seen in the great debate this week, Alice Darling was almost physically incapable <laughs> of expressing support for that proposition. I mean, yes, Alex Hammond said to him directly, yeah. "Do you agree with David Cameron yeah, that Scotland gone, could course. be a successful independent country?" And he just couldn't quite he was, say yes. He, you could see his physical torment. <laughs> he was <laughs> unable to say this, um, which is. 
quite remarkable because it's a perfectly unobjectionable remark. It doesn't imply that Scotland should be independent. You're just saying that obviously it could. It has very many strengths. But that is a big change. You're right. That's a big, big change. Um, and, and during the great debate, um, as you call it, the, other, the difficult moment for Alex Salmond was when Alistair Darling was really pressing him on the currency and asking him what his plan B was if Westminster are telling the truth that they will not allow a, a shared currency union mm. with the pound. What was he going to do instead? And this is an interesting political tactic. I mean, yeah. He looked very uncomfortable mm. as a result mm. of this. He didn't have an answer. This is what the, the, the political uh, classes are all talking about yeah, yeah. now. It's a dangerous gamble from Westminster, isn't it, saying you cannot share in our pound. It might be working in the short term, but it could have long-term political implications. Yes, I think that's probably right. I mean, it certainly has been very successful. I mean, they've managed to reduce the entire independence debate to this single issue of the currency. Um, basically by saying, as you know, George Osborne said famously on the 13th of February in his declaration on the pound when he came to Edinburgh on a day trip, <laughs> made this announcement, Scotland walks away from the Union, you walk away from the pound, and then he disappeared without Didn't doing any do interviews. Didn't do any interviews, yes. Bernard Ponsonby <laughs> was left chasing his, his people carrier, very angry, very angry man. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so he, he made that, that announcement, and basically he was saying... Uh, you know, something that's quite offensive, really. He was saying, if, if, if you vote yes, you know, we will do what we can to wreck the Scottish economy. Because that's, if, you, if he's serious about erecting a financial Hadrian's Wall to stop Scots using the pound, um, then, you know, and then that would damage uh, trade across board. It would damage many English businesses as well. It would be tremendous inconvenience. There's half a million people of English... Uh, birth who are now living in Scotland and they would have to change currency every time they go across the border. It doesn't seem to make a huge amount of sense, but that's what he's saying. Uh, and, you know, in the short term, I think that has been politically uh, successful to the extent that, you know, Scots may not really believe that he's serious. Uh, I don't think Scots think that English people have hold any animosity towards Scots, even Conservatives, even Westminster Conservatives. Nevertheless, uh, you know, Scots are cautious people. They know from, from their own history how being on the wrong side can be very unpleasant. Uh, and they're, they're, that, that certainly has made them think uh, that if, if Westminster is really so uh, antagonistic to the idea of Scotland becoming formally independent that it would go to those lengths, then that's making a lot of people think here. Do they want to take the risk? So in the short term, I think that has consolidated the no vote quite considerably. But, but in the long term, long-term animosity, isn't it? Well, in the long term, it's a, it's quite dangerous because I mean, I would argue that that people would disagree with me, of course, but I would argue that alters fundamentally the character and certainly the spirit of the union. Because, as we said, the union was meant to be a partnership of two nations. The pound was not the property of one side or the other. Scotland was not a colony. I mean, it's tremendously important. Scotland, you know, Scotland was meant to be co-equal with England, and the pound was 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 common property. It was never thought that. That one side could sort of take it away. You know, if Scotland doesn't behave properly, they'll take, they'll take away your pound from you. Uh, that's not really the deal. So I don't think Scots will ever be able to think in the same benign way they did towards the Union uh, in future. In fact, it's turned into a kind of, well, I don't know, ex post facto colonization. I mean, that, that is, has been a very, this has been a very sobering moment, I think, for a lot of the Scots who didn't think that um, Westminster would play hardball in quite the same way they have. And what do you think would happen if there was a yes vote? Alex Salmond and John Swinney get on the train down to uh, have a meeting in the Treasury to discuss this, to see whether or not they are serious um, about not allowing a shared currency union. Would, 
Westminster have to capitulate because it would do too much damage to the economy and the rest of the UK not to share the currency or out of political spite and facing a 2015 general election in the UK nine months from when these negotiations would start, would they stick to their guns? Um, they would, well, they wouldn't capitulate, but they would just, you know, negotiations would start. I mean, we, throughout we've been told there's going to be no pre-negotiations about independence, uh, but there has been. I mean, this was a massive negotiating posture. They were just saying no, basically, and, and without any, you know, uh, flexibility. And uh, after the negotiations would begin on day one after, uh, uh, after uh, yes, well, I don't think, I don't believe for a second that, uh, that Scotland would be forced out of the, uh, your, the, uh, the pound, the sterling currency zone, but simply for all the practical reasons I've mentioned. What, 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 how, would they, so how they would get around this, Wester would say, well, look, Mark Carney on the 29th of January, when governor of the Bank of England, he came to Scotland, he gave a very significant speech when he said that Scotland and England do represent uh, an optimal currency zone in all sorts of respects, GDP, north and south, very similar. They're both big trading partners with each other. They've got long uh, common history and they have a common language. So in many respects, uh, it makes a sensible uh, common currency zone. But what Mark Carney said was you'd have to cede sovereignty uh, to ensure that risk did not fall on one side uh, rather than on the other. In other words, that uh, a central government authority or fiscal authority would have to establish or set the parameters for borrowing and lending in an independent Scotland. So they'd say, well, look, are you, uh, do, you, do you go along with that? And John Sinney would say, yes, we've already said we'd go along with that. And they'll say, oh, that's not independence then. And you'd say, well, call it what you like. That's what we're, we're saying. So they would say, okay, well, if you're prepared to let the Bank of England set interest rates in Scotland, let the Bank of England you know, over, have oversight of borrowing, then fair enough. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the pound. That seems perfectly obvious. That's how they would resolve it, were there a yes uh, vote. And would that create disappointment or resentment in Scotland? Because, because there is no pre-negotiation, we have a white paper produced by the Scottish Government which lays out essentially their negotiating yeah. position as to what they would like an independent Scotland to look like. We've got no way of knowing how much of that would actually ever be enacted. If they come back after 18 months of all of these negotiations with significantly less than people thought they were voting for, having read the white paper and then gone into the polling booth, will they be angry that this isn't the independence that they asked for? No, because the white paper is pretty clear. I mean, I, I mean actually, SNP has been fairly, you know, to be very upfront about this. Um, you know, their idea of independence is not the kind of separatist independence uh, of the 19th century. That is a really, it's kind of anachronism in the modern world. The SNP gave up that kind of independence in 1989 when it adopted the policy of independence in Europe, which already implies a significant conceding of sovereignty to, to Brussels. And what they would say is that, well, look, France and Germany, they're both in a currency union. The ECB, the European Central Bank, sets interest rates for, the, for all the currencies in the Eurozone. So, and they, but they, they don't think that that means they're not independent countries. And they would say, well, that's just the same in, in, in Britain. You are independent. We just, independence is, sovereignty is always circumscribed in the modern world. And so I don't, think, I don't think that would be seen as a setback here. Other things might be. I mean, I think there would be flexibility on the timing of the removal of Trident from the client which would be a serious bargaining position. And I think that could well cause splits within the uh, Scottish National Party because of their posture. They have adopted you know, common policy on, on NATO as well, and that's been very controversial already. But actually, I don't think the, I don't think the currency would be a problem. Well, except they become intertwined, of course, because as Alex Salmond loves to quote an unnamed government minister uh, giving a quote to the Guardian saying... It wasn't Francis Morton. <laughs> he said... <laughs> of course it wasn't. Um, and, and the quote he keeps um, pulling out is this minister saying, of course there will be 
a currency union. But the second half of the sentence is because of the problems there are removing Trident, and you can see where the bones of a deal are if you put Trident on the table, you discuss mm. currency. But the SNP insists that Trident is not on the table, that it will be gone by 2020. Yeah, they are, they are saying that. I, I think one of the reasons they say that is because they're conscious that a number of people in the UK general staff are pretty fed up with Trident themselves. Rather than spending $100 billion on there's a weapon system which is an anachronism and it's not directed at anybody. We're not going to go to war with Russia despite what's happening in Ukraine. They would rather use that kind of money on getting proper arms and boots and vehicles for their soldiers. So I, I think, you know, I think my personal view is I think that, that England, the, the RUK, whatever you like to call it, would actually be liberated from this, the bane of of this uh, anachronistic weapon system where Scotland to become independent. I think that's, you know, I think they would actually uh, maybe adapt the timetable a bit, but it would not be around for much longer than 2020. Um, and let's consider the possibility of a no vote, which if you um, read the polls at the moment seems more likely. You have a really interesting quote in your book about the devolution referendum in 1997, saying that this was a practical democratic revolution without barricades, without fighting in the streets, without utopian ambitions and without any retribution afterwards. Now this is a bigger debate over a bigger question and there still aren't barricades and there's not too much fighting in the streets, although of course we didn't have Twitter in 1997. Um, there's a few utopian ambitions around just now. Will there be retribution afterwards, do you think? No, I, I don't think there'll be retribution as such. I think it'll probably just be a massive uh, anticlimax. I think um, people will be very disappointed, be a bit confused. Um, there'll be uh, the, the unionist parties will have a big conference somewhere. I mean, Douglas Alexander's proposing a new you know, constitutional convention. I think they'll get together and they'll say, you know, we must you know, reform and democratize the United Kingdom, we must extend devolution to the English regions, we must reform the Barnett formula, and then nothing much would happen because they have these kind of, well, they're always having these kind of big constitutional debates in, you know, in Westminster and, and Westminster Hall and all this kind of stuff, and nothing very much really comes of it. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the Tories are still supposedly about to uh, introduce a Bill of Rights to the UK, I mean, but nothing's been heard of that. And I think the whole thing would be very rapidly overtaken by the constitutional question of Scotland's, or sorry, of Britain's future within the European Union, because we're almost certainly now going to have a referendum on that in 2017. It's absolutely central uh, in politics. You can see how uh, Boris Johnson has now uh, invaded David Cameron's space by saying we should be thinking of leaving, and David Cameron can't say that, so that's a a very significant extension of that division in the Tory party. Remember, these are going to be the two future, potential future prime ministers. So I think that would take over very rapidly. Everyone would forget about Scotland and, and you know, forget about federalism. People keep telling me that there's going to be, that there's going to be federalism in the United Kingdom if there's a no vote. I mean, anybody believes that, then really were born yesterday. There's no, no question of, of the United Kingdom going to the trouble after a no vote, after trouble of refashioning the United Kingdom, having different layers of government, having a written constitution, having devolution all around. It's just not going to happen. There will be, as I say, tinkering around the edges. There will probably be um, more powers given to, if not the English regions, and certainly the kind of cities in the north of England, because that has become a, a political question. The Barnet formula will be, will be almost certainly reformed. That's one of the things the Tories have committed themselves to in the Strathclyde report. Won't be very good for Scotland, because they will then cut... It, Spending will almost certainly be reduced in Scotland relative to the other uh, regions of the UK. I think that's probably unanswerable. I don't think that that's... Uh, but, you know, on the surface, I think there'll be very, probably very little change. We'll just become a tartan theme park.
Well, that's, I mean, that's an, you can see why Westminster will be consumed by other things. Surely the Scottish Labour Party have to respond to the fact of this debate and come up with some kind of coherent devolution proposal which actually feels like they really are giving more significant powers if there is an appetite for that in Scotland. Well, I can't see why. I mean, they, they have, they've had the opportunity to come up with one and they've come up with something which is, well, it's both incoherent and minimalist at the same time. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, they propose, propose an extra 5% or so taxes to be devolved to the Scottish Parliament, which is almost in, you know, insignificant. And they've had this idea of, a, a, of having a top rate of tax, which you can go up but can't come down, which is you know, incoherent. I don't think anybody would seriously have a propose any sensible income tax system where rates could only go, go, go one way. It doesn't make any sense at all. And we know why. It's because the, uh, the Scottish Labour Party wanted to go around, wanted to emulate the Tories, go down the fiscal autonomy route. They were blocked from doing that by Labour's contingent in Westminster who felt that was too much power going north and the compromise was just a mess. So, I mean, but they will just very quickly forget about all that. They, they won't want to draw attention to it. They hope that, uh, well, first of all, Alex Salmon will be seen to be fallible, that he will rapidly fall away, the SNP will lapse into internal division and they'll rise to victory in the 2016 Scottish parliamentary elections. I actually don't think that's going to happen yeah. either. It's <laughs> more wishful thinking. There's much debate about whether David Cameron will have to resign as Prime Minister if there's a yes vote. Does Alex Salmond have to go as First Minister if there's a no vote? He doesn't have to, but I'm beginning to think he will. I mean, he's pretty old anyway. I mean, if you think about it, you know. He's not well, that old. I know, he's not that old. That's true. That's a ter what a terribly ageist thing to say. That's absolutely shocking. <laughs> what I meant to say was that, I mean, you know. He's been around a long time, but so <laughs> have we. It's a different a long... thing from being well, very old. Look, this is quite important. Because he, he, he became leader of this. I remember him becoming leader of the Scottish National Party in 1990. And with a short break when he went in the kind of, you know, furlough back to Westminster, he's been leader of the of the most fractious uh, party in Scottish politics for nearly 25 years now. And that's an extraordinary time to be at that level of politics. And I don't know how, I'm amazed he's managed to last that long. I don't think he can go on very much longer. Obviously, he's been very damaged by this debate experience. Perhaps it's not entirely his fault, but you know, this is how history moves. There are these key events. This will be seen as a very key event. I think now there has to be a changeover in the SNP, and almost certainly Nicola Sturgeon will, will be the leader, I think, probably by the 2016 uh, parliamentary election. I may be wrong, but that's, that's quite possible. And you think the, the debate this week on Tuesday night really fundamentally damaged him and the cause? Yeah, it was a setback anyway. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's... Yeah, it's a setback. I don't think it could be anything other than that. There was too, there were so many expectations of it. Um, you know, the Yes campaign felt this was... Answer Darling was going to be, you know, left cringing. I can't remember the phrase they used. He was going to be cringing in a fetal position, howling on the floor yes. or something like that, <laughs> which was... <laughs> you know, daft to, 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 to make that. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, as we know it, uh, you know, the impact is quite difficult, of that particular event, it's quite difficult to uh, calibrate because quite a lot of people are turned off by that kind of politics, particularly uh, women voters, or so I'm told, don't like that kind of confrontational finger-jabbing politics. And it may have turned a lot of people off. But uh, the, from the press's point of view, and the press writes the first draft of history, the press point of view was it was a, you know, Alex Salmon, the old stager, finally, finally defeated in a gunfight uh, by this outsider. And, you know, he will be seen as, I mean, fat, that's a, you know, he's fallible now. He's not, you know, he doesn't carry all before him. And that, that's, that's a problem. Um, you come to this as a journalist, a commentator, a historian now, um, but you're also a voter. Has the process changed your mind about Scottish politics and how you're going to vote? Um, 
Well, I never say how I'm going to vote in any election because, I mean, I'm a political journalist and uh, that's, uh, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to express party political points of view. I'm not a member of the SNP. I never have been. The only party I was ever involved in was Labour. However, this is not an election. This is a referendum. So it's, a, it's not a party issue here. And I have no, no hesitation in saying that I will vote yes uh, in the referendum. Uh, no doubt about that. Um, mainly because, I mean, if, if, there, if there was... Thank you very much. <laughs> I, wasn't, I, I wasn't seeking applause, I hasten to add. Um, I'll just take the temperature of the room. Take the temperature of the room, yeah. I wasn't seeking... Yeah, I, mean, that, that, um, I think this is, a, this is a kind of issue above politics, above party politics. I think it's, 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 um, I think it's wrong for people to be too coy about how they're going to, to vote, particularly when they're writing day after day and they're speaking in platforms like this. I think people should know where they're coming from in terms of this big constitutional issue. And, um, you know, I would, I would say myself, as anyone reads the book, I was never a natural nationalist, far from it. I mean, my mother was a prominent Scottish nationalist. And I, used to, I used to make her life misery by saying, oh, SNP, BNP, there's only one letter difference. You know, you're just like the National Front, and you're all fascist and this kind of stuff. The terrible stuff that you see Labour recycling in Twitter today, and I'm very sorry to my late mother's memory for having <laughs> put her through all that. But, I, you know, I, th I think very differently now. I mean, I, I would, if there was federalism in the agenda, I would certainly vote for that. I mean, uh, I, I support a Scottish Parliament within an overall context of the United Kingdom, which has substantial, decisive economic powers. Um, but like many people in Scotland, I'm disenfranchised in this election, in this uh, referendum, because we are forced with this binary alternative of two unacceptable uh, choices, one of which is... Uh, some form of independence. It's not entirely clear what that is. The other being some form of the status quo. We don't know what that is, but I think we can guess. Um, I mean, the SNP has gone a long way to refashion uh, their idea of independence along federal lines. I mean, they still they say that the United Kingdom would continue, but in a different reformed United Kingdom, that there would be a common currency, which automatically means that uh, there is a constitutional existence to the UK after independence, very like federalism. Well, with uh, the Queen's Head on that common currency. Well, you have the Queen's Head, you have Defence Corporation, you have the BBC, you have the National Lottery, and you have just about every, everything. You know, and that's one of the criticisms that will be made of the SNP after this. They will say, well, you, you trimmed so much on independence that it made it look like, well, what, what's the point of voting yes if it's just going to be like that? And that is a criticism that, that they're going to have to address. And it might, might be very divisive for the SNP in future. But I can understand why they went down that road, because they are talking about independence in a modern context. And no country is completely sovereign, certainly in, in economic uh, and monetary affairs, any longer. Uh, and that seems to me a recognition of reality. So, um, you know, I would vote for that as the best approximation of federalism that is on offer in this unacceptable choice. Well, let's uh, open this up to some contributions from the audience. I'm sure there are plenty of people who want to get in now. We have two roving microphones that will go around, so I'll ask you to uh, wait for one of them to get to you before you um, speak. We have got some... There's a gentleman over on... Um, well, my right over there, um, and there is another gentleman there. If we get a second microphone to him, then we can pick up another question. Now, I will ask you before you start... This is uh, not the time for political speeches. Let's uh, have uh, questions for uh, Ian rather than uh, statements of belief, if that's all right. The SNP frequently regard Norway as a kind of land of milk and honey that we should aspire to. In April 1940, Norway was invaded by Germany and was only liberated by the United Kingdom. The first thing that happened after Norway was invaded was that they sent bombers to bomb Fraserburgh. Strange but true. 
and they bombed Fraserburgh every week for four years. Question, please. <laughs> during, during four years, uh, the Russian, uh, during the Cold War, the Russians sent bombers to... No, we, we will need to ask you for a specific question. The question is, you, you indicated that uh, Scotland would be secure with its own home guard. What would you do when President Putin sends nuclear armed aircraft to Scotland? Oh, you can't be serious. <laughs> This is, this is a yes campaign planned. You must be. <laughs> I mean, I was... No, there was another gentleman with the microphone there yet. Over here. I hope this sounds serious. <laughs> um, would you like to say a few words about the so-called seat at the top table with regard to international affairs? So it's often mooted that the UK would lose its um, seat, permanent seat on the Security Council at the UN and not um, be able to punch above its weight the way it does in international affairs if it loses Scotland. Is that true? Uh, well, well, one of the anxieties that David Cameron actually expressed was that uh, the UK, shorn of uh, nuclear weapons and Scotland, would lose its position in the uh, Security, Security Council of the United Nations. And that's not, I don't think that's quite the issue you're asking, is what significance would Scotland have if it doesn't have the clout of being part of the UK? And I think the clout of the UK is, pretty, is kind of overstretched now. I don't, I don't think it has much clout any longer. Um, I mean, it may... It may it's going into a period where it's, it, it is still suffering from a kind of post-imperial delusion. I think this is why the Tory party is trying to take uh, Britain out of Europe and try to reconstitute some kind of, you know, uh, you know revive British... Uh, I don't know what, what they seek, what, where they seek Britain's destiny outside of the EU. But anyway, they, they do. And I, I don't think that... I think Scotland would have much more uh, clout, if you like, uh, with its own independent representation in the EU than as part of the UK. Because anybody who knows how these things work, um, the UK delegation goes in and basically does the negotiations. Scots sit outside uh, in the antechamber and are consulted every now and again, but they're not involved in the key decisions. Now, arguably, Scotland as a small country in Europe would not have a great deal of sway over the, uh, the other 27 members of the EU, however many it is. But that you ask any small country in the EU just now, uh, even countries not in the Eurozone like Denmark uh, or uh, Latvia, which is actually is just joining the EU just now, joining the Eurozone rather, uh, or Ireland, they will say it's far better to have your independent representation in Europe than it is to be part of a declining UK. <clears throat> Do we have any other audience contributions? So there are two... Ladies over here, if we could get both microphones to them again and then we can um, pick up one question after the other. Um, yes, both with their hands in the air there. Yes, you got the mic first, so okay. on you go. As a woman who's not frightened of change and therefore voting yes, um, I'm interested in what Mr McWhorter might advise Alex Salmon to how he might uh, tackle the next debate in a more positive way because I watched it, was quite disappointed in his performance and very surprised at Alice, their darlings, and would hope to see a more positive outcome from uh, Alex Salmond next time. So your thoughts on that, Mr McWhorter? There will be one later this month on the BBC at the yep. end of August. What does, he need to, what does Alex Salmond need to do the next well, time? Well, I hope he, he dumps the extraterrestrial affairs uh, <laughs> and the driving on the right and all this stuff which was just, you know, dumb, really. I mean... 
he was incredibly over-rehearsed by his aides who, uh, I mean, Salmon should not, does not need really people to tell him what to say. He's far better. He's a brilliant debater in his own right. He should just have gone in there and been himself. But he was trying to be, you know, follow these lines of approach which were, uh, you know, which I think anybody should have seen that these were, uh, you know, they're insulting to the viewers apart from anything else. You don't waste time with quoting endless quotes back of what Alice Darling may have said years ago. I and mean, nobody really follows this stuff. And, um, I think he just has to be more forthright. It's very difficult because uh, he is a very uh, combative debater, but he's being told by everybody around him that he must not be uh, adversarial. He mustn't do the finger pointing. He mustn't uh, come out with the personal abuse or the, 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 you know, the comebacks. Uh, and that, that, it, that means he is kind of hampered in his natural debating style. Uh, and, uh, but I think the, the essential problem, obviously, the key content problem was over the pound. And it has been an un, uh, both unintelligible position they've tried to adopt on the pound, just saying, we're not going to talk about anything other than uh, currency union. They have to talk about uh, the alternatives. They should have been talking about this uh, for the last two years, because obviously there are alternatives to a currency union, perfectly viable ones. Um, I mean, Norway is an independent currency. and. Uh, Switzerland has an independent currency, and Denmark has its own currency. Denmark's in the EU, it has its own currency. It shadows the, uh, the euro. Norway is outside the EU, it has its own currency, which doesn't really shadow anyone because it's got its oil revenue, so it doesn't need to bother. Um, there's any number of combinations of uh, independence or quasi-independent currencies, and they shouldn't be afraid when people say, oh, well, this is Panamization, this is sterlingization. You'd just be a banana republic. Uh, I mean, it's offensive to Panama, actually. Panama's not a bad country. <laughs> why, why is Panama? Panama is not a pariah state. I don't know. Anyway, there's lots of very positive examples of an independent currency. And what they have to make clear, uh, what they should be making clear, though, it's, again, it's difficult to spell this out, but you can do it implicitly, because if uh, the bargain is very clear, if, if Scotland is not allowed to use sterling, um, then Scotland does not have liability for... The, its share, per capita share, of the UK national debt, which is about 110, 120 billion, uh, equivalent to 5 billion pounds in uh, interest payments every year. Now, uh, people say, oh, well, this would be Scotland reneging in its debts. Uh, it isn't Scotland reneging in its debts. Uh, we don't need to worry that the international markets would think this is Scotland being like Argentina, because the situation is unique. The UK has said, we're not going to allow you access to the sterling zone. We're going to force you out of it. And George Osborne has already said, he said this before he made his declaration in February 2014, he's already said the UK accepts 100% responsibility for, or rather the RUK, what would be the residual United Kingdom, if Scotland votes yet. Yes, he says they accept 100% responsibility for the, sum, the total of the existing UK debt pile. So that's absolutely on the record. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's the hard bar. I mean, if, if they're going to say Scotland's not going to be allowed the, the pound, which Scot is as much Scotland's pound as it is England's pound or the RUK's pound, then that's the, that's the implication. You know, take it or leave it. Um, and the question, you said you were a woman not afraid of change. Well, we know from the polls that uh, women are less likely to vote um, yes than men. What can Alex Salmon do to reassure female voters, do you think? Well, I... I, I my personal journey has been from a, a Labour supporter, completely disillusioned, thinking of voting or voting yes with a view to potentially a 
more socially democratic country, who knows, I might go back to vote Labour again. So maybe that's, you know, maybe that's part of the way. People have to make their own individual choices. I'm, I'm not a natural SNP supporter, never have been, but I just feel for Scotland that this is the way forward. I think it's... It, it would liberate the Labour Party as much as the SNP. Well, the possibly, SNP. from Westminster. It's, it's as much a leap of faith as anything else for me. Maybe that's uh, foolhardy, but that's where I'm at. Interesting. Thank you very much. Um, there was another question in that section. Sorry. You made great ploy about the history of Scotland being in partnership with the rest of the UK. As probably several in this room. I regard myself as British. I have a Welsh mother, a Scottish father. I happen to be born in England. I was educated in Scotland and all my grandchildren live in Scotland, although at the moment I reside in England. How come that the other partner in the partnership has no say at all in this referendum and we have had no access even to the said debate on television? You mean why, why do people in England not have a vote? In well, just what do you think about the fact that you've made great play about it being a partnership and that it is not a colony, no self-determination as, how to say, the Falklands, mm -hmm. and yet the other part of the partnership has no say at all? Uh, well, I, I'm just not a point. I was born in London, as, uh, in England as well, and uh, I, I think I still regard myself uh, uh, as British. And in some ways, I'm very saddened that uh, the debate has not taken off uh, south of the border. I mean, there's shown very little interest in it, indeed. And it seems to be conducted at a very primitive level of celebrities coming and saying, oh, come stay with us. <laughs> I mean, and I hear endlessly about how every time, uh, every time one of the UK papers deals with Scotland, they have the same picture of that stupid idiot in a kilt with his blue face and, you know, Claymore. And that tells you all you need to know about it. They're not, really, they're not really interested. If they were interested, they could get involved in it. If they were seriously interested in it, you'd have had uh, serious, significant moves toward federalism. You would have had the House of Lords, which is supposed to be being reformed, and no one knows, no one knows what to do with it. The House of Lords would have been reformed already as a federal Senate with uh, regional representation. You'd have had some moves, constitutional moves, to recognize uh, Scotland's need for autonomy. Because while it's a partnership, I said Scotland was a junior, Scotland was a junior partner in the partnership, but in all partnerships there comes a time when both parties, uh, as in, for example, a marriage, when both parties, for whatever reason, uh, may decide they have to go their separate ways. And really, you, that is, it's for the partners to decide that. I mean, you don't say, if a woman finds that she can no longer stay in a relationship with her husband, you don't say, oh, you walk away from this, you walk away from the family home, you walk away from everything else. That's not it. You, partners are partners voluntarily. They have a right to relinquish that partnership. And if, if the rest of the United Kingdom does not want to get involved in it, does not want to, to try to understand what's going on, and does not want to try to reshape the United Kingdom uh, in a more suitable form, uh, then that's their, their issue. And I'm afraid the UK is now so dominated by the city-state of London that really everything, everyone else in the UK is part of the hinterland now, and they don't really count. That's the, that's the significance of it. Yes, well, I come from Yorkshire at the moment. Yeah, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm in the whole of Scotland, yeah. so I know what you're talking about. I feel very sad, and I think a lot of people will feel very sad if Scotland chooses to go independent when they fundamentally. Well, what would the sadness be, though? I mean, it's not, Scotland's not going to go anywhere, it'll still be here. I mean, <laughs> you can still, you know, I mean, people will still be coming to the Edinburgh Festival, you know. I mean.
I don't believe for a second you have to change currency when you cross the border. I mean, that's ridiculous. As is this argument that everyone would be checked in case they're immigrants. I mean, that's not one of the most offensive things that uh, the, uh, the unionist, uh, unionist, and uh, shamefully Labour has endorsed this argument as well, that we'll put up border posts to stop immigrants coming from Scotland into England. Because they're, I mean, that is just shocking, don't you think? I think that's appalling. We'll take another couple of uh, audience contributions. There's a gentleman in a white T-shirt at the back. We get one microphone to him, and there's an eager gentleman uh, near the front here as well. We'll start at the back. Thank you. you. If there was to be a yes vote, which I hope there isn't, where do you see the independence journey ending? You talked there in your last answer about the City of London having disproportionate power. Could you see Edinburgh, for example, calling for independence from an independent Scotland? Or Shetland, for that matter, calling for independence? Well, uh, no, I don't, I, don't see for, for, I don't think for a moment that uh, uh, Edinburgh would seek to try to be independent from the rest of Scotland. I mean, Scotland's a historic nation, and, you know, nations have, that's part of the reason for trying to look at the history of the United Kingdom and reflect upon it and the extent to which, you know, it is composed of, of nations which have a long history, uh, uh, both, uh, you know, intellectually and in terms of the constitution. Uh, so, I, you know, the idea that there's going to be some future fragmentation, it's conceivable. Shetland, I mean, Shetland, Orkney, I mean, the, you know, I can't remember, was it, was it Orkney or Shetland? I can't remember, it was part of the diary of, um, uh, of a... Uh, a Danish princess back in the 15th century and apparently it's only on loan to Scotland and it could go back. I mean, people come up with these things. I actually chaired the All Our, uh, Our Islands, Our Future conference in September of last year, which was all the islands. It was uh, Shetland, Orkney and the Western Isles. And what I was amazed by, having followed politics there for the last 30 years, is the extent to which they now feel very closely identified with what's been happening in Scotland in Shetland, you used to have an organization, organization called the Shetland Movement, which campaigned uh, for, uh, for independence for Shetland, effectively, read, led by a very energetic uh, guy called Alistair Goodlad. I spoke to him this time, and he says, no, there's no question of that now. I mean, they feel that things have improved so much now that they have the Scottish Parliament, they feel closer to it. Shetland is doing better than ever. Shetland is doing very well. Shetland got an oil fund. Uh, <laughs> Scotland didn't. They got an oil fund. They've done very well. And uh, I think they're quite comfortable with the present arrangement. But if they want to be independent in the future, no, there's no problem. There's nothing to stop them. There was a question near the front here. This is a key issue of inequality, where we're one of the most wealthy countries, talking about the UK, but one of the most poor, divided. We've got in Glasgow areas where the male expectation of life is 68. We want a better future, a different future from what the UK, with all its tridents and so on, and bit more billionaires than ever, we want a different future. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think... Uh... Yes. Don't worry, we'll, 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 we'll move on to a question. There's a gentleman in a checked shirt. Um, just, well, we'll take a question here, and then if you can get a microphone to the chat with his hand in the air behind us. So am, I so, am I asking? Yes. For the moment. Okay. I agree the debate with Alex Salmond was a terrible disappointment all around, both sides, I think. I was astonished he didn't raise on the currency issue the Irish president, where the UK happily entered into a union with Ireland for 40 or 50 years, but he seemed to forget that. But the question I have is that is not the turning point. Is, could there be a sort of black swan coming into this now by the name of Boris Johnson? How will Scottish people, how will the people of Scotland 
uh, look to a prime minister in London uh, who is entirely a creature of the metropolitan elite in London. In fact, how will the people in Newcastle and Liverpool cope with that, frankly? Well, uh, pretty, pretty scary prospect, I have to say. <laughs> he could be the next, he could be the next uh, party leader and, and prime minister. Uh, I mean, I, you know, more frightening for Scotland than David Cameron, who's pretty metropolitan elite. Um, I would think, I think more, more frightening. I mean, he's a very, he's a very determined. I mean, Boris is actually much more right-wing. I mean, on kind of, you know, personal, you know, affairs, private life, and stuff like that. He's fairly liberal, but he's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got to be careful what I say here. But um, you know, in terms of Europe, for example, he is pushing the Tory Party, pushing David Cameron into a corner, saying you've got to contemplate. Uh, departure, which is really hardball politics because Cameron knows he can't actually say that. But uh, as far as here, I mean, I know people up here get very annoyed because, I mean, imagine if Gordon Matheson, the leader of Glasgow Council, was contemplating becoming an MSP. Do you think it'd be all over the papers in London or the UK? No, of course it wouldn't. I mean, uh, but, you know, that's, that's uh, how, how it is. The metropolitan kind of political culture does absolutely dominate in, uh, throughout the entire UK. It's another expression of this kind of you know, metropolitan parochialism, the fact that anything that happens within the N25 is assumed to be of huge significance elsewhere. But he is, a, he is definitely a frightening prospect, but unfortunately I don't think his, his, his emergence has happened, uh, you know, soon enough to, prevent, to forestall uh, the, the referendum result. I don't think it'll be a key issue. And we'll take what will need to be our last question, I'm afraid, because we're running out of time with the gentleman there. I wonder if you think the grassroots below the radar campaign on the yes side the kinds of things that Robin McAlpine was talking about recently whether you think that is strong enough to, to sway this in the last few weeks uh, well it's certainly it's certainly possible I don't think it's by any means over and um, you know uh, I don't think that, that just that debate is all that's been going on and anybody who's, anybody who's been travelling around Scotland as I have been will know that and this really has been the revival of the public meeting in a way I can't remember in Scottish politics for 30 years. I mean, there's far more engagement here than there ever was in certainly in 1979 and far more than in 1997 referendum. I mean, people really are engaged in this and everybody in Scotland is thinking very hard about it. It's being discussed everywhere. People are hugely informed. Um, and I don't, I think, so it's still, still eminently possible there could be uh, an upset. I think, you know, it's still the case though that um, you know, Scots are, feel much more positive. I think Scotland has changed as a result of this experience, and I'm sure that that can, can lead to positive things in the future. But I still think most people, uh, they think, you know, it would be a good idea, but they think, well, if, 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 you know, if Westminster is going to try to wreck the Scottish economy by this pound exclusion zone, they're going to think, well, can we take the risk? And that's what most people, I think, are worried about. And it's difficult for a country which, as I said, has never felt itself an oppressed country. That, you know, people have civil rights here. We're not oppressed by England. We're not a colony of England. Uh, we're a democracy and we have a Scottish Parliament. So, you know, people will reflect on that and they are concerned that the economic consequences, if England or our UK behaves in this, uh, in, you know, very offensive way, that it could cause trouble, and Scots don't want to go to fight. They don't want to go to war with anyone, even if George Osborne does. So, you know, that's, uh, that's I, I still think, what's uppermost in people's minds, as I've been speaking to them over the past six months. Well, 
Ian, before we're invaded by some form yeah. of uh, <laughs> protest from outside. It's like Boris's people yes. outside. <laughs> Word spreads quickly through Scotland. Um, let us first um, thank Linda for the um, signing for the hearing in paid, who's done a marvellous job for us with last hour. We're assured the demo is well outside the gate, so you are safe inside the confines of the Edinburgh Book Festival, which means you'll have no trouble at all making your way to the signing tent, where uh, copies of this excellent book will be available to purchase. Ian will uh, sign them and carry on the conversation with you out there. But uh, in the meantime, Ian, for a fascinating thank hour, you. thank you very thank much you. indeed. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.